Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. Today, we are going to explore the fate of local news. Over the past couple of decades, local newspapers across the country have begun to disappear. Battered by huge revenue losses from declining advertising and circulation, newspaper owners have sought to reduce cost in a variety of ways, including selling off newspaper buildings, outsourcing printing and other tasks, but mostly by firing reporters, depriving the paper of the very journalism that makes newspapers valuable to the community. This strategy obviously has meant newspapers are thinner, with less news for their readers, and less able to monitor what is happening in the local community. The obvious result is even more declines in circulation and revenues. This decline in local news has affected every city in America, and some of its most venerable prize-winning papers, such as the Chicago Tribune, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Baltimore Sun, and the Providence Journal. In a recent article in the Atlantic Monthly entitled, The Men Who Are Killing America's Newspapers, McKay Coppins describes how wealthy hedge funds have found ways to profit from the decline of local news, even while accelerating that decline. Coppins focuses on one hedge fund, Alden Global Capital, that has perfected a strategy of buying up struggling newspapers and drastically cutting costs by selling off real estate that the papers own, firing staff, while raising subscription prices. While this strategy is devastating for the newspapers in the long run, in the short run, the hedge fund owners can bleed off substantial profits. These venture capitalists, according to Coppins, are to blame for the decline of local news, even more than the other market challenges facing local newspapers. To provide some perspective on the decline of local news and the provocative thesis of the recent Atlantic article, we have with us today two media experts from the Providence College faculty, Associate Professor of Political Science Matt Guardino and Associate Professor of Communication Andrea McDonald. While we'll be focusing on the decline of local print media in this conversation, our guests are well qualified to comment on the prospects of broadcast and social media filling the gaps left by the decline of local newspapers. Listeners should be well acquainted with Professor Guardino, who has been a Beyond Your Newsfeed guest several times to discuss elections and the role of media in American politics. Matt has published numerous articles on the media and politics and is the author of Framing Inequality, News Media, Public Opinion, and the Neoliberal Turn in U.S. Public Policy published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. He recently received a grant from the Russell Sage Foundation to study public opinion about immigration and the role the media has played in forming those opinions. This is an exciting project done in collaboration with our former Providence College colleague, Jeff Pugh, who is now at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Down the road, we're going to have a podcast episode on this project once Matt and Jeff have gathered in more data uh, for the project. Matt is also serving as Assistant Political Science Department Chair. 
I'm especially happy to welcome our second guest to be on your newsfeed. Professor Andrea McDonald uh, is our newest colleague in the political science department, starting just this academic year as director of Providence College's brand new communication program. After earning a BA at Vassar College, Professor McDonald matriculated at the University of Michigan, where she earned her PhD in communication studies in 2012. Before coming to PC, Andrea taught at Emanuel College as Associate Professor of Communications and Media Studies. She has published numerous articles, primarily on the role of celebrity gossip in American culture and its impact on our politics. Her book, Reading Celebrity Gossip Magazines, was published in 2014 by Polity Press. Her co-authored work, Celebrity, A History of, Fo of Fame, written with S.J. Douglas, was published by New York University Press in 2019. She currently is working on an edited volume entitled A Gossip Politic, forthcoming from Paul Grave next year. Professors McDonald and Guardino, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Bill. Okay. Uh, look forward to a very interesting conversation about this really important topic. To start out, I wonder if both of you could give your view on exactly why we should be concerned about local news. Why does local news matter? Uh, I can start with that. So it's, it, there's a large and growing body of research that kind of uh, concludes with the same general point that the loss of local news really undermines democracy, both in terms of local politics and, and public issues, but also even in terms of national politics. So really the conditions for accountability in government and politics and also government responsiveness really decline when, when local news diminishes. So just a couple of kind of specific pieces of, from that research. The public has less political knowledge um, of just what's going on factually um, when local news declines, studies have shown. Voter turnout declines actually even levels of corruption in government um, increase, particularly in local government, when um, local news diminishes. Uh, and there, there's other research uh, in that same vein. And just on the national level, just for a minute, it's important to realize that traditionally local newspapers, you know, via the AP, the Associated Press, as well as even local television stations, have been an important conduit for national information to many audiences. Um, through, you know, providing so uh, information from the, the, the kind of networks um, through the local uh, stations. And there is research as well that shows when local uh, news declines, polarization in the community increases and even misinformation. And citizens often begin to see local issues and events through a national lens, which is often uh, a more polarized lens. So those are just a few things to think about. Yeah, on that latter point, Matt, I, I think we've been seeing that with the controversy over so-called critical race theory, which probably would not be raised in a local school board meeting except for the fact that people in the local community are hearing about this uh, from national news sources, correct? Yeah, I think that's a great example. And, you know, we can think about, uh, I spent many years, for example, covering school board meetings for local newspapers. And it's typically been this, you know, kind of, um, in many ways, boring affair, but, you know, often important information decisions are made there. 
but we're losing reporters, right? Locally based reporters who are professionals who are, who are covering these things. And so a kind of counterbalance to some of the national narratives um, we're not necessarily getting in a lot of these places, which I think adds to misinformation and polarization. Now, Andrea, can you, what, what could you add to what Matt has had to say here? Sure. Um, when I think about local news, I think about the minutia, the granular details of everyday life in people's communities. And those are the issues that affect people in a real and tangible way. And so being able for the public to feel like there's a buy-in to what's going on and to feel like they have a voice, uh, someone in the public sphere who's able to represent their interests and concerns, I think that helps to mitigate some of the feelings of polarization, sometimes resentment um, that we've seen proliferate. And I think about this also in the context of social media and digital culture with uh, sites like Neighborhood and Facebook and community groups then pop up to not, not replace, but sort of fill the gap in a way. And those sites tend to be more uh, individually focused, more um, more divided along lines of race and class. And so I think, again, uh, to Matt's point, this shuts down opportunities for dialogue. Um, and to emphasize um, one of Matt's earlier points as well, um, having journalists who know the community, who they themselves are members of the community, who have perhaps known the area in great detail for many years. Um, those are the kinds of knowledge, um, knowledgeable individuals that we really need to have to uh, be able to voice the concerns to truly understand what's going on in the community. So in all of those ways, I think um, the public function, the um, important good that local journalism does uh, really can't be overstated. Yeah, so what, what you said, I mean, I guess we're going from sort of the abstract and, and sort of profound concerns for things like democracy, uh, the responsiveness of government, to, and I find it very interesting, Andre, that you mentioned some of the, the, the nitty-gritty local concerns that, that people might have on their minds and are worried about, uh, but, but can't really address those in the absence of, of good professional journalism in a local newspaper. Could you say a little more about that? Like, what kinds of things might a, a, a person in a community be frustrated by uh, because of this, even with the availability, as you say, these, these online uh, neighborhood sites and the like? Sure. Uh, well, I'll, I'll speak from a personal point of view. I, I'm a resident of Pawtucket, and uh, one of the conversations that I have all the time with my husband and our neighbors is about trash in the neighborhood, and that's just such a seemingly banal topic of conversation, but whether or not the garbage collection picks up certain kinds of trash and whether or not the local businesses are responsible for trash on the sidewalk, um, that is, as Matt earlier pointed out, uh, in some ways deeply boring, but in other ways it really does truly affect the quality of life in the neighborhood, the way that people feel about their community, the sense of pride that they have. So this is not a glamorous topic. Uh, it's not something that is going to get picked up by the national news media, but it 
it's something that's on people's minds as they uh, move about in their community. And that's the kind of thing that local news can address in a way that other kinds of media perhaps cannot. Yeah, and I, that, that strikes me as the kind of frustration that can, can uh, result in uh, a reaction of maybe, you know, anger uh, that might be focused on even national issues, uh, but it's really kind of stemming out of frustration with my local community is just not operating the way I want, and there's, I don't feel like there's anything I can do about it. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned I live across the line from Pawtucket uh, in Providence, and as you're probably aware, Andrea, there's been all this work on water systems and uh, natural gas systems in the neighborhoods, uh, trucks dr uh, digging up the streets constantly, and it's impossible to get information about exactly when is this gonna happen, why is it happening, when are the streets ever gonna get repaired, and I think, you know, in the past, our local newspaper, the Providence Journal, would have provided information about that, uh, but it no longer does that kind of you know, uh, local reporting, as far as I can tell. Uh, anyway. So these, these are all excellent examples of these kind of granular issues and events, and they kind of bring me back to my days, again, as a local reporter for newspapers, actually, in upstate New York, and just kind of remembering how, you know, there's journalism, which is extremely important, and, you know, so covering government um, and decisions that are made about things like trash collection budgets, right, that might have effects on people's everyday lives. But there are also really simple things like providing information about what days that, you know, um, yard waste is going to be picked up or when different streets will be closed for, for work and these that were traditionally provided in a kind of reliable way and in an authoritative way, right, through local news sources um, where people could really turn to those things. And now that it's, it's less, less available um, and, and more scattered for sure. I wanted to also pick up quickly on something else Andrea said a little while ago about uh, class and, and race divisions. You know, local news has traditionally uh, attracted a bit of a demographically broader audience than a lot of other types of news outlets. Uh, to some extent in terms of age, but especially in terms of race and class. And so with the loss of local news um, and the dwindling of right those those mechanisms and, you know, also less educated folks, we're getting, uh, you know, uh, an issue here for political and social equality, right? Because, you know, political engagement, um, the availability and accessibility of information across these lines is is diminishing, I think. So let's talk a little bit about why this has happened. Why have uh, local newspapers uh, gotten in trouble? Why isn't there as much local news as there used to be? Uh, I mentioned uh, the, the article in the Atlantic Monthly earlier, uh, but, but before we get into that specific thesis, what are the kinds of things that experts point to uh, when they talk about uh, why local newspapers have, have declined in the last couple of decades. Uh, Andrea, you want to start us off with that? Sure. So one of the most prominent loss of revenue for newspapers comes with the loss of 
revenue from classified ads. And this is especially true for local news. Um, and we can look back to the early 2000s. I mean, it's kind of funny to even think about Craigslist now because it's sort of been in many ways supplanted by other social media sites. But Craigslist first and then other market spaces and advertising spaces online uh, drew revenue away from that primary source of income. Advertiser sales also in the last two decades uh, to newspapers as, uh, as print readership and print subscriptions declined, so too did advertiser revenue uh, being brought into the print marketplace. And then we can also, of course, think about the rise of digital and free news media content as a critical component of this. So once folks realized that they could get free news online, many people getting news through social media, uh, that drew customers away, so to speak. I think that can sometimes be overemphasized because I, I do think it's important to look at the kind of multiple revenue bases that newspapers operate from, not just to say, well, readers can get news free, so they're, so they're leaving, because I don't think that's the entire picture. People still do get content online, and some people still do subscribe to newspapers, but taken together, those factors certainly contributed to a financial loss for the industry. Yeah, could we talk a little bit more about the decline of subscribers, the fact that people are purchasing newspapers less? Uh, why, why is that? I wonder if you pick up on what Andrea said, Matt, is there? So this is a long and complex entangled story, but uh, just to pick up on the subscriber aspect of it, with the greater availability of information, um, you know, really even predating the internet with kind of the expansion of, of television and cable television, and then, of course, the internet and social media, and the ability for people to meet their information needs and or entertainment needs uh, in a variety of ways, in, in very personalized ways, that's, in, to some extent, reduced the demand for getting information from a sort of, sort of curated, kind of packaged product, like a newspaper. Because newspapers have traditionally uh, attracted people uh, by giving them a range of things, some of which appeals to certain segments of the community more and others, uh, others to other segments of the community. And so sports, lifestyle news, entertainment, culture, local government, uh, national, et cetera, et cetera. And in, in a way, you know, subscribing to the newspaper was a way to kind of subsidize the production of a broader range of content that could then, you know, fund uh, journalists and other workers there and advertising as well subsidized the operation but now with the competition for ad dollars and with people turning elsewhere um, the the base right the base of funding is is really uh, frankly I would say it's collapsing yeah yeah even the loss of classified ads in newspaper make it less valuable to a lot of people I remember as a kid I, I used to deliver newspapers and we used to get uh, a sales pitch talks from the higher-ups in the newspaper because part of what we did also was to try to get new subscribers to the newspaper. And they would always emphasize, well, tell people that they, uh, about the classified ads and that they can look for jobs and, 
and, and, and, and automobiles and things in the classified ad. So that was always a big selling point, along with sports. <laughs> so, and as you say, Matt, without those things as an incentive for people to buy the paper, people simply don't, don't buy it. Um, but but uh, there seems to be a spiral that happens here as well, that, that as the paper loses revenue, it's able to deliver less valuable content, which makes it even less valuable to subscribers, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly true. I just want to, well, without going too far deeply into the weeds here, I want to dial back a little bit and make the point that although the rise of digital technology and, and the internet has been critical in this whole story, it really predates that. And there are reasons to, to and there's evidence to suggest that local newspapers especially were left entirely unprepared for the rise of digital because of decades of, of media consolidation, you know, increasingly bought up by national chains and then later multinational corporations that were looking to squeeze profits out of them by cutting journalists uh, and, uh, and also by softening news content. And uh, when, when digital came along, they were really in a poor competitive position in, in many cases. And the, this kind of spiral that you're talking about bill really um sort of took off because owners want profits and they had typically had generally become more f focused on not just making a profit but making a large and growing profit and doing so and seeing those more short-term returns and that is incompatible really with uh, arguably at least with providing the kind of content that will attract a large enough subscriber base and therefore enough ad dollars to make the operation sustainable both economically but also in a community and in a, in a democracy sense because more subscribers flee then the the product gets worse and more subscribers flee um, and it's it's been a long story that's really only accelerated in recent years right so matt you're saying that the story that uh the the, the that Coppins tells in this Atlantic article, which he implies is a recent kind of development with venture capitalists buying up newspapers. You're saying it's it really goes back decades. Yeah, I don't want to I, I don't want to make it a complete equivalence because I think that the venture capital story is just kind of the newest and and most predatory form of this uh, because many of these chains were were focused on media as a business and many of the people running them had media and even journalism backgrounds. So that makes a difference in the sort of earlier stages. However, the basic logic of, you know, using these properties to, you know, wring profits out uh, has, has this, this pedigree, if you will, that, that predates the more predatory forms of it. Right. Andrew, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I teach about an example of other other ways, actually, a, a couple of key examples. Um, I'm teaching right now in my class the film Nobody Speak, which looks at other ways in which uh, large corporate entities and individuals, uh, billionaires, have influenced or attempted to influence journalists by either um, filing lawsuits intended to bankrupt news media organizations or purchasing uh, newspapers in order to control the kind of content that comes out of the newsroom. 
So uh, to Matt's point, this, I think, uh, what's described in the piece in The Atlantic is another iteration of practices that have been employed for some time with various levels of pernicious intent, um, either profit-seeking or designed to control, shape, or otherwise influence the kind of reporting that we see. Um, I think that also works in conjunction with the kind of shift in the national landscape to a broader tabloidization of news content um, because when we have a readership that's primed to expect softer news, um, news that is more celebrity sports scandal focused and less about adversarial journalism, um, there, that dividing line or that kind of line of what audiences expect to see, um, it may help to shield some of the shift away from the kind of adversarial reporting that um, is being under threat here. Right. So, Andrew, you're suggesting that these developments have even changed citizens' expectations of what they're going to get from the news. So that though citizens might have thought, I'm going to learn something about what government is doing or what's happening in my local community, they're now seeing the news as simply a place where they can learn about the latest on the Kardashians. Is that is that what you're suggesting? That may be a bit of a stretch, but, okay. but I don't think it's uh, entirely out of place. Uh, as, as Matt mentioned, uh, really, this goes back quite a ways to the entertainment influence in cable television. We can trace it back uh, even to the 1970s and the rise of People Magazine, Entertainment Tonight, these kinds of um, these kinds of outlets which blended and blurred the line between news and entertainment. And so I think for many years now, we've seen an audience where people go to media outlets to be informed, but also to be entertained. Am I getting information from The View or from Last Week Tonight or Saturday Night Live? I'm getting some amount of news, but I'm also being entertained. And when I go to then read about quote unquote hard news um, or watch it on TV, a lot of times on CNN, for instance, I can learn about what I should be buying for the holidays or how to make an apple spice drink right. and possibly about the Kardashians. But at the same time, I might rely upon that site for free news and information about what's going on in Congress. So I do think there's a way in which the public has become accustomed to understanding news, um, what we've historically thought of as hard news in conjunction with more entertainment-focused content. That expectation is kind of baked into the cake at this point. Right. Actually, as you were talking, I was thinking about the Today Show, which... Uh, I'm old enough that I remember the Today Show back in the 1960s <laughs> and uh, and how, you know, uh, in those days, you actually got some hard news from the Today Show compared to now when it seems to be almost totally absent. Maybe a five minutes uh, or three minutes at the beginning of the of the of the of the hour. And then it's on to the the pumpkin pie recipes and. Whatever. So, uh, 
I watched the Today Show this morning, actually, and that was exactly my my impression, which it typically <laughs> is uh, every day. So just to piggyback really quickly on uh, Andrea's important point about sort of infotainment, I think that it raises this bigger question about what really shapes the operation of media and what the content of media. And so in the kind of textbook free market economic vision, um, demand shapes supply, right? But it's much more complicated than that. And sometimes supply shapes demand over time, and especially in media markets, because consumers, certainly with television and the internet, and then even to a great degree with newspapers, uh, news consumers are not really the, the main sort of customers of media outlets. The main customers are essentially advertisers of one sort or another. Uh, and so media is as much in the business of sort of constructing and cultivating a kind of audience that is going to be uh, going to draw ad dollars than it is in necessarily directly serving content that people want. And so you get these sorts of situations where tastes and habits and expectations can be really shaped, right, by what people are provided on a consistent basis. Yeah. Could we uh, take a closer look at, at the Coppins article for a moment uh, and this thesis? Uh, uh, maybe both of you could maybe elaborate. I, I gave a kind of short, quick summary at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, could the two of you kind of elaborate on what Coppins is talking about? I know he's not the only person who's written about this phenomena. So could you maybe fill in exactly what what what's going on here with the uh, profit-seeking goals of venture capitalists and how that's affecting newspapers? And I'd like your opinion on how serious you think this is at this moment uh, for the future of, of local newspapers. So I can start here. And, you know, so... One thing that, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier about, that this is a kind of new iteration of a long-term trend, but one thing that's new about the situation is that these are, uh, these are entities whose very purpose is to wring money out of uh, failing business enterprises, right? And, and to... And, and often it's framed as, well, buying up newspapers and saving them by injecting a bunch of capital into them and making a healthy profit in the process. But the, the reality in practice has at least often been not saving newspapers, uh, but actually placing them on unsustainable financial footings in order to make as much profit as quickly as possible with really little or no concern, right, for the viability of the organization going forward. And so that this kind of predatory aspect, and we're seeing that more and more, and Alden is just one example of several, uh, several uh, venture capital funds that have, have followed this practice. It struck me that this phenomenon is not necessarily specific or unique to news either. It reminded me of stories that I've been hearing in the last few months about venture capitalists' involvement in the housing market and the ways in which um, these very wealthy entities and corporations are sort of swooping in to 
purchase or um, finance loans in areas where the housing market um, already has volatility. And so in this way, further exacerbating inequalities in the marketplace. Um, when we think about that applied to journalism, surely the consequences of that um, go beyond just the financial solvency of an individual paper, but also we've, we've already talked about the potential implications of that for the communities in which those papers existed, um, the communities those journalists served. So um, I see it also as part of a broader conversation about wealth distribution and the financial power that these organizations have to really shift marketplaces and shift, um, shift power truly um, within the landscape. Um, it raises a question of sort of, can you buy influence? Can you buy public sentiment if you simply have enough capital? Um, and I think that's, that's something that we're seeing, unfortunately, in, in various spaces. And these newspapers' owners are so detached from the local communities served by these newspapers they purchase. Unlike the old days when usually local newspapers were owned by uh, people who lived locally in the community, right? Often a prominent family who would... Uh, I'm trying to think of names of prominent families that own newspapers that they're not coming to me uh, right now, but... That, that's such a really important point and a, a point that is, I, I don't think actually gets enough attention. And so this is not to glorify, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s necessarily because there were, there were many, right, in severe flaws in media and journalism then. However, there is a huge difference between um, even owning a regional or local chain of, of news, of, of media organizations and news outlets and, you know, wanting to make a healthy and hopefully growing profit and being a business person, uh, but also being rooted in the community and being able to more to, to better balance civic concerns, even concerns about local reputation, uh, which is really important, uh, on the one hand, versus this sort of newer nationalized you know, multinational corporations and now venture capitalists coming in who don't face the even the it's more of an in a sense, an amoral enterprise, right? They, right? they don't, and they don't even face the reputational incentives to want to, you know, be seen positively, right, in a civic sense right. in their community because they're not rooted there. Right. Uh, actually, my wife and I have had, in terms of that, that perceived positively, we've had that reaction to the Providence Journal, uh, which we've read for decades now. And uh, we used to be, take some pride in the Providence Journal. We subscribed to the Providence Journal. It was in the 1970s, won Pulitzer Prizes. We knew we were getting quality news and information out of it. And it's really been frustrating, particularly in the last decade or so, to see how that newspaper just shrank. And uh, my wife would get it every morning and she would, she would, get, would, would, would scream sometimes this, there's only two pages to this newspaper. Uh, the, this is not a newspaper anymore. And we also got very frustrated because uh, in spite of the fact that the content was diminishing, uh, they kept raising prices. Uh, and finally, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, we got another letter from the journal saying they were going to raise our prices. And we, like 
probably lots of other subscribers, simply canceled. We said, no more. <laughs> We're not going to subscribe even to this newspaper that we for many years admired if they're going to just complete, uh, keep demanding more money for less and less. And I think that's the phenomena that these uh, outside owners uh, can easily promote in order to get, make some profits, but it certainly is not as devastating the, the reputation of the papers. And, and not to overplay this point, but just one other aspect of, the, of it is that there is a sense in which this older model is part of a broader model of capitalism um, that you know really is gone in a lot of ways, which is where there was uh, a bit more of a of a uh, of a sense of uh, I don't like this term, but a sort of the owner as a stakeholder in the community who has responsibilities to employees and workers and consumers that are at least going to be you know included in the calculation, right? Along with uh, responsibilities to their own profits and and in, in the ownership, right? And a sense of I mean I worked for an organization uh, that where there was a longtime family and owned a, a small chain of newspapers where there was a, a, a real concern for the people who worked there and including for the journalists and the quality of the journalism as much as the family was very interested in efficiency and, and, and frankly, maybe not paying us as well as many of us would have liked to be paid. And so that model of capitalism, I think, is, is, is one that we're seeing diminished overall, but in, in the news media in particular. So what about uh, digital uh, newspapers uh, sort of filling the gap here? Uh, is that a, an adequate substitute, uh, do you think? I know the Providence Journal has a digital edition, and uh, all major newspapers seem to now. Uh, uh, what do you think about that, Andrea? I think in some ways digital editions have an important role to play for readers who may not subscribe to a traditional print paper, um, especially thinking about younger consumers of news who may be more apt to go online to get news content. So to be able to have a subscription model, it does afford an opportunity to have news and information that's very current to publish immediately, which is something that readers are often seeking now because we've become so accustomed to the online first model. Um, at the same time, I think that users in general are, are not, they're not sitting down with that content in the same way that folks would sit down with the morning paper. Um, that content is still in competition with and in conversation with plethora of other content online. So when you're looking at your digital content, for instance, in the Wall Street Journal or in the New York Times, and then you're scrolling through Twitter and you're looking at other content that you might intentionally seek out across the web, um, there is a sense of a lack of the coherency, the, um, the curated package that Matt mentioned, um, the voice, I think, of journalists that come through when you have a kind of longitudinal relationship with a newspaper, um, I think that level of trust and uh, to some extent accountability, when it's, you know, there's, there's 
there's something to be said, I think, for the medium itself here, for um, the tangibility of print, for the kind of feeling of um, continuity that that has historically offered. When we start to see, uh, as we start to see the generations who are accustomed to having the newspaper delivered every day age out of the market, it will be interesting to see what happens then. Where do younger consumers go? How do they navigate that? Um, yeah. Well, thanks, Andrea. You just validated the feeling I have as, a, as one of these older newspaper consumers that likes to have the print newspaper in front of me as I drink my coffee every morning uh, and am in, in, in very unhappy with reading a paper digitally <laughs> in comparison. I'm glad that you validated that there's something to that physical presence of the paper that I, that I value so much. Uh, it's not just a, a, a crazy uh, oddity. Uh, I, if I could add also, I think it contributes um, to our sense of willingness to engage in longer form content. When we sit with a newspaper as the act of reading, which is something that I'm very interested in, the act of reading something in print is fundamentally a different act than reading something on your phone or a tablet right. or even on a laptop. And so um, when we think about digital reading, a lot of it, even if it's not from a digital subscription, but much of what we're attuned to do online is to read quickly. I find even for myself to get the information as quickly as possible. And when we're thinking about context and we're thinking about nuance and we're thinking about historical placement of information, I think that's something that we may be more primed for as readers when we sit down with that newspaper rather than we're, you know, we're in the middle of our morning commute or we're killing time before a doctor's appointment. It's not the same type of reading experience. Yeah, that, that intellectual fragmentation is, is really uh, so common with digital media. I know I've discovered that, and the sites encourage that, right? They, the way they present things is, is they actually encourage you to jump from one thing to the other very quickly with prompts on the side and, and advertising that's uh, coming up and, and all of that. Uh, and I find that that affects the way that I read the morning newspaper even. And I, I, it sometimes bothers me that, I've, that, I'm, that I'm jumping around even too much in that print newspaper because I've been uh, affected by this digital reading. So just to uh, make a couple of points off of what you both said. So one is just this fragmentation that you're talking about, Bill, is, is, as well as just the latest iteration and particularly intense ways of something that started really with television. So we need to kind of realize that, that, that that's a, that's a long-term trend, but really quickly on the economics of the, Andrea made really important points about the, the practice of reading and the social and cultural elements, but purely on the economics of local digital news, the, the, the situation is, is very, very dire. There is really no evidence that local newspaper, the online versions of local newspapers can be economically financially viable in the online space and certainly that can run on subscription models the way that, say, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal can. And, you know, the competition for ad dollars is, is fierce. The, the availability of other things to look at is really, uh, is, is really uh, a, a major factor. And also the, the 
just the traffic right that finds its way to local news there's been a lot of systematic research on this online is is really minuscule and it the future looks um not very bright there without some pr pretty fundamental changes in, in the political economy of that whole situation yeah so uh, it seems to be a kind of a dire situation i mean you we started out talking about the value of local news for democracy uh, that citizens need uh, to have news about their local communities uh, and, and, and obtain information about even national news from local sources. Uh, but we're, you've now described a picture where that is almost totally absent now. Uh, that strikes me as you know, a fundamental challenge to the survival of democracy if, in fact, local news is so important. Okay, Matt and Andrea, we, we started off this conversation talking about the importance of local news for democracy, but we've been spending the last you know few minutes talking about the demise of local news. Uh, and so I'm wondering, you know, if local news is so important for democracy, we, we need to find some kind of solution to this problem. And I'm wondering what might be some ways of revitalizing, uh, particularly local newspapers, uh, and one, one idea that I've read about is the notion of, of rather than rapacious billionaires like the venture capitalists, benevolent billionaires buying up local newspapers and investing in them and providing capital so that they could uh, produce more news. I guess this is the Jeff Bezos model. Bezos, of course, the CEO of Amazon, who purchased the Washington Post a number of years ago and in fact did invest a lot into the post and revived it at a time when it was in financial difficulty. So what do you think about that as a model for reviving local newspapers, the, the action of benevolent, benevolent billionaires? Uh, Matt, you wanna take that first? Uh, sure, Bill. So uh, I'll start off by saying that th this idea I think has positive elements to it and there are examples of, of, of so-called benevolent billionaires coming in and actually being able to inject capital and improving the news product and, and kind of adding, I guess, I wouldn't call it a solution, but sort of making things better, right? Um, but as a long-term or you know, sufficient solution to the crisis, I think it falls way short. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is that just purely in terms of what I would suggest is the need out there. In other words, just the just the need for capital, especially for for local for local newspapers. It's hard to imagine there ever being enough uh, willing billionaires, let alone willing benevolent billionaires, um, uh, out there to put that kind of money in. And the second thing is just that, you know, it raises questions about you know even the most well-meaning billionaires or civic-spirited billionaires having control both over the over the sort of financial elements right of news operations in a broad sense but also potentially you know their issue priorities for example shaping what the news covers even if not in a direct sense i mean that raises fundamental questions about you know news as a public good right in a democracy and i think we need to think about more sustainable and and, and sort of more democratic models yeah, that issue of conflict of interest has actually come up at the Post, right? Uh, with some concern about the Post's coverage of Amazon. Uh, I know that, that they try to 
be objective, but evidently there, there have been worries about that. And I think that asking those kinds of questions are really important, right? And that is really important, even though, you know, the evidence for sort of direct effects on coverage is, is, is thin at this point. I, I think that even the possibility of that occurring is, is problematic. Okay. We need to take that seriously. Andrea, you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I agree with Matt's points. Um, when we think about journalism as a public good, as a kind of watchdog of the powerful and of politicians, of corporations, to have a society and culture with such stratified wealth where we can see individuals in this, in this model having control, financial control, if not editorial control over what is presented to the public. It certainly puts journalists in a difficult position of not necessarily having clarity on whose interests they're serving. And it also puts the public, I think, at a disadvantage to even raise the question of whether or not this coverage is influenced by ownership. It contributes to a public culture where people may not have a sense of trust in journalism. And it allows for some of those seeds of doubt that contribute to a disinformation environment um, to be planted. So I think that this model, where to Matt's point, may be helpful and sometimes even necessary to save these resources um, for the public it also opens up more doors of, of challenges and potential questions and problems uh, for the ethical side of things. Yeah, and that might even be very devastating in an era when there's so much uh, skepticism about the media and about, 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 uh, about that. Okay, well, well, what about other soldiers? Sometimes people talk about municipal ownership of newspapers. We have a long tradition in America of municipal ownership of utilities, water systems, electricity. Uh, one might argue that newspapers are a kind of utility, uh, some, uh, a kind of infrastructure that's, particularly when it comes to democracy, as you've argued, that is necessary for democracy to function. So could that work? Could uh, various cities essentially finance their local newspapers? I think that's a promising model. Again, I don't think any of these models are on their own sufficient, right, to meet the scale of the crisis. But I think that uh, the fear is always, of course, with any type of government ownership or even government funding, that there will be political manipulation um, and lack of political independence and potentially censorship. The research shows, however, that in those situations, and we can look abroad for models here, say in Europe, where we have heavy public subsidies, public ownership, um, and often decentralized uh, or in partially centralized, but decentralized in terms of operation, what we find is actually those news outlets tend to be very independent um, and very autonomous when it comes to their editorial decisions and their coverage. And so there are ways to put in political firewalls uh, to, to you know ensure or at least maximize that independence. And Newspapers are a utility as far as I'm concerned. The media system overall is a kind of infrastructure. We don't often think of it that way, but 
it has many of the qualities of of an of of physical infrastructure in terms of connecting people, helping society and the economy and the political political system operate effectively in a public sense, and it's something that arguably is not easily supported or well supported purely through private sources, or similarly to you know electric. Uh, and, and other utilities, and also roads and bridges. So I think that's a promising idea. Yeah, Andrew, what do you think about? Do you think municipal ownership could be insulated from political influence, especially in light of what you just said about concerns about the public's uh, skepticism about, say, a billionaire owning a station? Uh, what's the what's the balance there? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's a careful balance. Uh, on the one hand in our current political moment where we see a lot of partisanship, um, a, high, a high skepticism, high level of skepticism of uh, some of the public towards news media, that there will be questions raised uh, in that model uh, about political influence and, and undue influence. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that such a model can help provide a sense of public buy-in for news, a sense of public investment, a sense of even public ownership over the news that can help revitalize some of that feeling of goodwill and trust. And so while there are certainly things to look out for, potential challenges, I think that it's also a model which could re-envision for the public what it means to have a sense of connection to journalism and the value of that. Yeah, and surely this model would reinforce kind of the importance of newspapers as a democratic institution, that they're, that they're so important that the public itself has to own the newspaper and, and be the ultimate party responsible for the future of the newspaper. So, uh, what other ideas, uh, aside from these two that I've thrown out, uh, might might help us uh, revitalize local newspapers? Uh, so Andrea, do you have any ideas on this? It strikes me that there could be a kind of cooperative model when we think about cooperatives of journalists kind of working together um, to have profit from and also have financial investment in uh, a press. I think that's a model that uh, could potentially work for uh, that industry. Uh, so if I could interrupt, so by cooperative, you mean groups of journalists getting together and say, okay, we're, we're journalists, we want to create a newspaper that we're going we're gonna to work on, but we're also going to be the owners of the newspaper. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about, for instance, in a previous town I lived in, there was a a food cooperative. So the people that work there also own stake in the company. And that kind of model um, certainly puts more pressure, I think, um, on the, the employees and also can potentially raise uh, ethical questions again about ownership, but it can also be a way of circumventing some of these outside uh, financial interests. I I think that's also a very, very sort of promising direction. And there are some examples, I think far too few at this point, but, but in the re last, say, five to 10 years of, 
um, oftentimes reporters and, and journalists at uh, news newspapers that are going, you know, suffering major cuts or going under financially, pooling resources uh, and, 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 and getting uh, loans to buy the newspaper and take it over. And so one of the things that does is that it, it puts more of the control in the hands of the professionals who are trained and socialized to care about the quantity and the quality of news. And it doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily, I think there are different models. There are, there are ways to do that sort of um, with sort of more nonprofit basis, but also for profit. But either way, they have a, a material as well as a, a sort of ideological incentive not to cut the news product down to the bone, not to make the kinds of compromises that are often made when you have top-down ownership and private top-down ownership. And so I, I think that is definitely a, a, a piece of the solution. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, so we talked about three alternatives. Anything else that we could, uh, you'd want to suggest? I would just jump in really quickly and make a broader point that I think applies to all of the alternatives, although not so much to the to the benevolent billionaire model, but to the others is that government, in my mind, needs to play a substantial role here of one sort or another in, in stepping in, encouraging, incentivizing directly or indirectly a lot of these things. And so there are all kinds of ideas for tax incentives, for, uh, for example, uh, for for you know, worker ownership, um, or even, you know, we have a long history in this country of, of, of indirect subsidy of the press system. And so we used to have low subsidized postal rates for periodicals. Right. And so, you know, broader based um, in incentives like that uh, could be part of the solution too. Yeah, and we do have, you know, a, a national public television network, can be PBS and NPR, uh, one could imagine spinning off a newspaper part of the sort of overall public news infrastructure that could provide some government funding, or at least maybe startup grants for some of these cooperative efforts, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, uh, you know, we'll, that sounds very promising to me. Okay, well, thanks so much, Andrea and Matt, for a very interesting discussion about uh, local newspapers. Uh, we did talk a little bit about broadcast and social media. Maybe a, someday in the future we can have a, a podcast that will take a deep dive into those uh, media sources and, and their effect on democracy. Uh, but I think we did a nice job today covering sort of the challenges facing, you know, local newspapers, the value of local newspapers for democracy, and, and uh, this last discussion about alternatives really makes me more hopeful about uh, the survival of the, the local newspaper. So thanks so much for being with us. And thanks also to our uh, intrepid producer, uh, Isabel Fernandez, uh, who has kept the technology running here, and to our other student producer, Sienna Strickland. Also thanks again to Chris Judge of the Providence uh, Marketing and Communications Office and thanks to all of our listeners. Please tell four friends about Beyond Your News Feed.